Hello, my fine friends. Thank you for choosing my podcast to listen to. We're powered by ACAS Plus. You can join uh, ACAS Plus if you want to get lots of bonuses. Google Rahalastapa and ACAS Plus and you'll get right there. There's lots of fun stuff to get. Um, Rahalastapa tour is nearly over. 21st of March, I'm at Bedford Corn Exchange. I'm talking to Olaf Falafel, who's a very funny children's author and stand-up comedian, and Al Murray, the pub landlord and historian man. And a friend of mine, uh, it should be fantastic, who went to Bedford, went to school in Bedford. It should be amazing. There's plenty of tickets left for that one. Uh, Glasgow on the 27th and Hull on the 28th. They're both sold out, but do keep checking the sites for returns. And uh, occasionally we put some comps back on sale, so there may be a chance to buy tickets. The main thing, though, is that I am going to be on tour doing stand-up, and I would love you to come. Uh, it's uh, from... It starts officially in May, but so uh, there's a few tryouts in April and March. So I'm at the Bill Murray. I'm at um, various places, Luton Hat Factory and uh, the Berry Hedge End. I don't even know where that is before going into a big tour where I'm going all over the place. It's selling in various degrees. Glasgow sold out. They've added an extra date. Uh, Chorley sold out, joined the waiting list. Uh, but a lot of the others have plenty of tickets. So... Do go and come to see that. richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour for all those tour dates. richardherring.com slash Rahalastapa for the remaining Rahalastapa dates. And uh, yeah, and then I'm going to take a little break from doing Rahalastapas. It'll be nice. We've got loads in the bank. Uh, so I hope you're enjoying them. I think there's some very high quality ones from this tour. Uh, so do keep listening. Do keep telling your friends. richardherring.com for all your Richard Herring needs. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy another Rahalastapa. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to our first book club of series two. We're back. Hope you had a good August. Um, and I'm delighted to be talking to Erin Kelly about her fabulous book, The Skeleton Key. Hello, Erin. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. 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 Um, Ke- before we start, can you tell us a bit about yourself and who you are, Erin? Yeah, um, I am a, well, I'm a novelist. I think The Skeleton Key is my ninth psychological thriller. Um, so I write standalone books, crime fiction, but not really police books. So I don't write the kind of book where you start with a chalk outline and then in comes the detective. Um, uh, I used to be a journalist, but I was an appalling journalist. I only really became a journalist because someone um, told me that it was an, a kind of easy platform to get a novel published. And I teach creative writing <laughs> as well, too. OK. And is it a good is that a good platform to become a novelist? There are quite a lot of journalists who become novelists. So is that is that a good way in for people who want um, to be novelists? 
Well, it is, except it takes a bloody long time to become a journalist. It's not, you know, you don't just go and knock on Mr. Murdoch's door and say, can I have a job? Well, certainly not if you've got my kind of background. Um, uh, but it's it's actually really good because it stops you being scared of a blank page. And I meet lots yeah. of beginning writers who don't feel permission or don't have uh, any sense of entitlement that this is something you can do. And I got all of that out of the way being a journalist, all that kind of imposter syndrome. Uh, yeah. So by the time I came to write my first book, I'd been writing for magazines and newspapers for about 10 years. So yeah, yeah it's it's helpful in that way. Actually, very often novelists make, um, journalists make appalling novelists to begin with because they're so <laughs> trained in not departing from the facts and being super economical and not delving and there's no kind of supposition, but uh, yeah it's a good I think it's a good tra a good as training ground as any cool and so I this is the first of your books I've read I did very much enjoy it so I, I will Thank be you. seeking out some of the others um which, which are your favorites of your previous books I know one of them was in the Richard and Judy book club and there is no higher accolade than that in, in, <laughs> as being a novelist so I think Julian Barnes genuinely yeah. said he was more excited about the Richard and Judy um Book the <laughs> um, I, I personally, I've been in it three times actually, and I personally right. would take the Booker over it. Um, so I don't. <laughs> uh, uh, my favourite of my books is probably my third novel, which was called *The Burning Air*, and it was a bonfire night thriller um, about a uh, kidnapping set in Devon okay. in one of those quite bonkers festivals that we do so well in this country, where um, yokels carry tar barrels and flaming on their backs. Um, and that was a book that. I really loved and I'm proud of, and it didn't necessarily reach as many readers as I wanted it to. So that's my, when people ask me, what shall I read? I always say, go and read The Burning Air. And, show and, it do, and do you find, I mean, obviously you've had very successful novels. Do people go back and, and pick them all up and start from the beginning? Well, they're not, they're not uh, connected, are they? But they go back and read no. the other works that you find in that? No. Yeah, yeah, you do. And that's the good thing about <laughs> writing um, standalone books as opposed to series fiction is that they can pick them up and read them in. Yeah the order most people's entry point is a book called he said she said which is my biggest hit that's about four or five years ago now um, yeah but it's a good thing to have a breakout book a good way into your career because then you have a backlist yeah and there's um you know passive income's the dream isn't it so <laughs> <laughs> although it's do doing well enough with those early books to be able to do extra books afterwards is obviously exactly, the, exactly. is where it's 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 a it's a it's a difficult balance it's a, it's amazing anyone to, to anyone who gets published should be very proud of themselves but to, once you've once you've got up to book nine then i think that's probably a, a vote of confidence uh from somewhere um <laughs> So the skeleton key, uh, this which uh, was recommended to me by previous guest uh, Stephanie Merritt, um, uh, who'd, who'd read an advanced copy as I have. Um, it's the sort of starting point of it, it which it intrigued me, is those sort of nineteen seventy. Well, is Masquerade, which was this uh, puzzle book from the nineteen seventies, but not just yeah. that. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about why that was an influence and what your other influences were for the start of this idea? Yeah, well, since starting to publicise The Skeleton Key, I have realised that the world is full of people who've never heard of Masquerade and people who are completely <laughs> obsessed with it. And there doesn't seem to be any real in-between. So Masquerade was a picture book. It was published in 1978 by the artist Kit Williams. And it's a beautiful picture book. It works. I mean, I had it when I was little and I didn't really understand that it was a treasure hunt book. It works as a children's storybook. The photos are, the, the pictures are 
it's a kind of photorealistic painting, but they're very surreal. So you've got kind of giant puppets and animals. I'm actually looking at my wall now because I cut up a paperback copy of it and I've had it plastered All right. on my walls for the last year to give me inspiration. So I can see <laughs> um, uh, a man and a woman dressed as the sun and the moon dancing around a globe upon which sits a man who is half a hair playing a violin. Um, so that gives you, I mean, it, it's, it's bonkers and very surreal yeah. and quite trippy. Uh, and there are words in the borders around the pictures, and each picture puts together a clue to solve a master riddle. And when the master riddle is solved, or when the master riddle was solved, um, it led to a buried jewel, a golden hair, um, which was buried somewhere in England, uh, Bedfordshire, it turned out to be. <laughs> and um, yeah, and it was a real sensation at the time. It was, I mean, when Masquerade was published, we only had three channels and the pubs all closed in the afternoon. So it was in a time where a book really could be a phenomenon in the way that it, it, it in a very pure way that it can't now, it genuinely has to be word of mouth. Um, yeah. And people became absolutely obsessed with it i mean marriages broke down because one spouse would neglect the other to spend the evenings trying to decipher the pictures and the codes and um yeah it was a really extraordinary thing which i mean when i was four i just thought it was a cute picture book uh, and it's a bit like the <laughs> narnia books in that you can uh but without the um <laughs> without the sort of um thumping terrifying uh theological background um <laughs> that you can read it you can go back to it you read it once as a kid and it's a beautiful yeah. and then you read it again as a teenager and you see subtext and then you can read it as an adult and you can really give the pictures a go um so I, it's always been part of my life and then I got it out again when my kids were preschoolers to read them the story and mm. I started thinking what would it be like if this book was published now because it's it's so a book what would it be like now when people would be trading information on the internet and there will be chat rooms with people you know threatening to murder and rape each other because they didn't agree with the solutions and there would be <laughs> you know there would be some men typing that women shouldn't be searching you know all of the things that happen now I, I started wondering how would masquerade be received now yeah. and um in the last decade, there was something similar in the States and it was called Forest Fen, uh, The Thrill of the Chase. Um, it was a treasure chest and a map buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. And that treasure hunt um, with the clues again hidden in a book, that did happen in the internet age and people died looking for it. I mean, it was hidden in the Rocky Mountains, which is slightly ch more challenging terrain than Bedfordshire. Um, so <laughs> people, you know, people fell down crevices, they sort of drifted off on rafts, never to be seen again. Um, people accused each other of hacking into their hard drives to steal the solutions. And that level of obsession, coupled with the sort of original childhood love of Masquerade was what made me think there are people who would kill for it yeah. to, to learn a secret like this. There are people whose lives are devoted and if it happened now, he, it, there, there, there were examples online of the kind of vitriol and the weirdness that people can read into something that often isn't even there. I think often with yeah. these treasure books, the the wrong solutions are much more intriguing than the right ones because you can. <laughs> it, it's a really interesting, especially in this kind of age of post-truth fake news. You can you can see people presented with the same facts and our reading is so varied and so oppositional in lots of ways. 
it's really, you know, it was a really interesting study into how one person can take one tiny piece of information and run in the complete opposite direction with it and develop something that's almost a religion or a cult out of it. Yeah, I mean, it is it is about uh, obsessions, uh, as well as being about family, uh, which we'll get on to later. But, it, it, you know, it, it might strike people as being, uh, and it sort of, the book begins with someone basically uh, attacking the uh, the main, the, the, the narrator of most of the book, yeah. uh, trying to get inside her, because they think the solution is uh, inside her, let's say, yeah. um, which might seem extreme. But then, you know, it, as you say, uh, I was looking at the Masquerade uh, Wikipedia page and Bamba Gascoigne said of Masquerade, uh, tens of thousands of letters from masqueraders have convinced me that the human mind has an equal capacity for pattern matching and self-deception. While some addicts were busy cooking the riddle, others were more single-mindedly continuing their pursuit of the hair, quite regardless of the news that had been found. Their own theories had come to be seem so convincing that no exterior evidence could refute them. Uh, these most determinative masqueraders may grudgingly have accepted that a hair of some sort was dug up at Amtil, but they believed there would be another hair or a better solution awaiting them at their favourite spot, which is sort of what the book is about. Is It's about people uh, refusing to, to accept the Believe words. the evidence of their eyes. But there's so yeah. many parallels in, you know, climate change deniers and the anti-vaxxer yeah. movement, whereby uh, nothing... I mean, it's said, isn't it, that the way you tell whether someone is a conspiracist or a conspiracy theorist is you say, well, what would it take to change your mind? And if they say nothing, then you've lost them. And that's the kind of mindset I wanted to explore, but with treasure hunts rather than um, globally terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always thought, because I always thought there was something in when, when comedy chat rooms started up very early, people were so vociferous about, their beliefs in comedy and who was and wasn't funny, and uh, and it did be, it reached this stage where a certain chat room everyone would start agreeing with each other and saying, uh, "What's the opinion of the chat room on this?" Before they dared profess their own opinion, so that oh, you wow. would you would get these you'd get these very strongly held cliques, basically, and some of them mm-hmm. some of them pleasant and some of them nasty, and that's a bit what the the the, the treasure hunters aspect of this is like is that some of them are obviously fairly murderous or, or approaching yeah. them. and then some of them are obsequious and trying to sort of they're, they're all sort of trying to cross a line because obviously they want to get into the real lives of, of the family that, that, that the book is actually about mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and some of them do that through uh through ingratiating themselves or trying to be nice but they're still they, they still feel special even the people who are helping i suppose feel special because they are they're getting some extra information and they're, they're crossing the line so it's it's very interesting in terms of fandom and and the way that fans can easily turn against the very yeah. you know that they sort that, of well, they get really the cut. That's yeah. really interesting to me as well. The way um, I'm not saying that I spend my entire life on Twitter, but I do uh, I do think it's just such a fascinating place to learn about you know human psychology and the rabbit holes we can go down, and that's what you would see. You know the um, the, the way that the more beloved a figure is, the stronger the vitriol is when they are, you know, when they're temporarily cancelled or they say something that doesn't chime with the fans' views. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's amazing, you know, that some of the fans, I mean, it's not amazing, but it's tr- very truthful that yeah, some but... of the fans actually hate the guy who's created created the book. As it as it turns out, he's not the nicest person in the world, the man who's, uh, who's created He's the not book. a great so guy. The, no. <laughs> isn't a great guy so we 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 veer into other uh issues uh by him uh which i suppose really because really the book the books as much as being a thriller and, and having an element of mystery as to uh as to why certain things have happened and when and whether there's been murders and that sort of thing 
Um, it's really about a family and quite a dysfunctional family, and uh, which is sort of headed by a, a narcissist who's very competitive with his best friend and uh, uh, isn't a, isn't a great guy and not very nice to his daughter certainly. So it's it's because it's take, told from her perspective. She's sort of rejected a lot of the family even at the start of the book. Yeah, yeah. So for context, the actual plot of the book is that the author. Um, the head of the family, Frank Churcher, who has been made a knight for his services to art, um, is the author of the book. And the book caused a lot of trouble for his family. It's called The Golden Bones, the, the book in my book. And I've always wanted to write a book within a book. And I think most authors end up <laughs> doing that. If they hang around for long enough, you get to your book within a book one. Um, everyone's also got people going mad on an island book, but I haven't reached mine yet. Um, so my book within a book, book uh, The Golden Bones, is the fictional treasure hunt book. And... Um, like the Forest Fen book, uh, A Man Died Searching for It, and also uh, Frank's daughter, who is the narrator of the book and the person that we see being attacked in the opening pages, um, she becomes the object of Treasure Hunter's uh, interest because they believe that she is a character from the book. And the treasure here isn't a golden hair, it's a little golden skeleton which has been scattered into seven parts, so seven clues in the book. And they've all been found apart from one bone, the pelvic bone. And on the 50th anniversary of the book's publication, Frank decides to reissue the book and reveal the hiding place for the last piece of treasure. And instead of digging up a little golden bone, they find a real human female pelvis. And that is when we realise that people are, you know, the threats are not just on the surface, that someone, something somewhere has gone very wrong. And it's as chain of events that would never have happened if this book had never been published. Uh, and I liked the idea. I mean, I set it in the, I, I let it begin in the kind of 60s and 70s, partly because I wanted to write about my parents' generation and um, the, the kind of boomer mentality that uh, this is a generation that's had every single advantage. And I suppose they were, you know, ostensibly they were enlightened, but actually free love probably did as much damage as it did good. And I wanted to compare that with the, you know, how that attitude changes in that sense of privilege as it goes down the generations. Yeah, well, it's 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 an incredibly gripping book. I have to say, I, I really, um, I was really into. It. I read it within about three days. It's not it's not a short it's not a short book. It's got, you know a good chunky book, but it's uh, but it just keeps you gripped. And it, it's very the writing's very. Uh, you know, you keep people guessing and uh, you're, you're very tricksy as well. There was one bit I had to turn back to find out what the hell had happened because you you tricked me quite convincingly. I won't say any more than, more than that. Right. I don't think it's obvious what I mean, uh, until you've read the book. Uh, but it's, it's it's beautifully written. It's very evocative and the pacing's amazing. And, it's, and the, the, the prose of it is also uh, terrific. So it's it's it is it's a gripping um, book that I think people will really enjoy. I don't I don't re- I read it as well because I didn't have the audio book. I usually use the audio books, but I, I found it much more gripping uh, for being read actually. So I was it was oh, kind of you. fun to. Be, I don't think we've got yeah, audio. So, yeah. Have you not? No. Okay. Well, uh, there probably will be one by the time this goes. Out. There will okay, be. Yeah. yeah. Well, but. By the time this goes out, you can do, and and, I, and I'm sure it will work very well as an audio book. But it is, it's, uh, it's been a while since I've had a book that, you know, you've got there by the side by the side of your bed, and you're, you're sort of trying to get through to find out what happens before you fall asleep. I didn't, I didn't quite stay up all night reading it, uh, but uh, but I did stay up late longer than I intended to as I tried to work out what was happening. And so you know, there's there's a mystery within it, and there's a thing to you know, there's there's 
there's things to wonder about and guess and try and second guess, which you, you probably won't manage to do. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Did you think about, um, I mean, obviously the books, are, uh, what, what's interesting about it is that this huge success turns in for, for the family turns into being uh-huh. quite a burdensome uh albatross around their neck really as they as they're sort of haunted by this story that that uh, frank um is unable to be seen seriously as a proper artist or wants to be seen properly as a proper artist and obviously it has violent repercussions on his on his family uh so you probably wouldn't have thought about this having written this book but did you was there any point where you thought i'll try and write the book within the book and and, I, and hide some no, stuff and oh see my goodness. <laughs> no, no there's no um <laughs> there's no easter eggs that relate to anything outside the story what actually was the hardest bit though was writing so there is a book within a book to be written and i thought i can't i can't write my well obviously I, what i can't do is sadly paint beautiful pictures and show you that um there's a folk song at the end of the book which I did write which is um which one of my friends has recorded actually uh which is a kind of origin of the myth that fed into the story um I'm digressing here but what um the the thing about the clues in treasure hunt books and masquerade's not the only one like I said there's been Forrest Fenn and there's a big American one called The Secret and there's one that's ongoing at the moment um, in Wiltshire, um, which is quite similar to Masquerade. Uh, and the clues are, what, what interests me is not the clues themselves. So they can be anagrams or ciphers, you know, it all gets a bit Da Vinci code when you get into the actual yeah. clues. So the masquerade, the solution to Masquerade, I'll give you an example of how esoteric these are and what a, what a mental leap they are. So the, the way to solve the clues in Masquerade is you look at a bird or an animal or a person in the picture and you draw a line from their eyes through their pointed, their longest finger or toe and that picks out a letter on the edge and then that gives you a bundle of letters which you must make into a sentence which itself becomes a clue. And the sentence it makes, I think I've got it written down somewhere, is... um, Catherine's long finger overshadows earth buried yellow amulet points the hour in light of equinox look you and how and from that people worked out that it was in a park in Bedfordshire uh, where the shadow of St Catherine's cross 
hit the ground in a certain you know the shadow hits a certain point during the summer equinox and that's where you had to dig and someone got there you could put me on a desert island with that book for the rest of my life and I wouldn't even <laughs> come close to working that out but I did have to put a couple of clues in and it was just so you know I can't even do a cryptic crossword or a sudoku so that was the hardest part of the book it wasn't the kind of misdirection and the usual plotting it was writing a bloody sodding clue to come up with it and in the end I just put one in and I just you know there was something about King Arthur and Highgate Cemetery and it was just fudging it but that almost I think about a week before I gave the book to my editor I still didn't know what that clue was going to be only that it had to be misinterpreted and lead to all sorts of trouble so yeah um I'm not uh I'm not a natural treasure hunter at all really not well, it's sort of the whole thing with masquerade because I did Tried, you know, I, I'm a little older than you, and I, I did try to solve it as, a, I guess, a 12-year-old or 11 or 12-year-old with my friend Steve Cheek. I mean, we went to the library for a, an afternoon after school. I think it was probably the extent of it. Um, but the, the 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 balance is you've got to have make something that's that's solvable but not immediately solvable. Yeah. And there was a chance. There was a chance with that. I mean, it, within Masquerade, it was all like there was different pictures that gave you the keys, and then the animals were in a different order in one thing. Though it, what I mean, there's a, there's a there has been a book written, I'm sure, and there is a book to be written about what what actually happened with Masquerade because obviously there was a oh, lot um, of the Gascoigne subterfuge. Robot. Yeah, yeah, no, but there's a lot of sub. And I think there's a screenplay in development at the moment right. because when it was found, yeah. actually, two people did solve it, but in the meantime, the artist's ex girlfriend had given her new boyfriend the clue as to where she thought it might be and he dug it up so when it was found yeah uh, it was you know the guy cheated um yeah. so yeah the story of the search is is as bonkers as the treasure hunt itself which i love but even what he even though the way he claimed he'd solved it was you could have solved it just because there was a there was a clue about Catherine of Aragon, one of six to eight, which I didn't even work yeah. that out. And, there, and then there were crossed fingers over the equinox. So you could have sort of worked out it's something to do with Catherine of Aragon. It's got to be a shot. You know, you, you could work backwards, which, which is what that guy yeah. claimed to do, but then didn't actually didn't actually do. But yeah, it's it is it's nuts. It was. And, and that's why I think for anyone of uh, my generation and older, I guess this was this was such a big deal masquerade that I think mm-hmm. um that 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 will resonate with with lots of people and, and and but equally you don't need to i mean this book is not about masquerade and in no way connected with masquerade beyond the initial idea so it's you don't have to have um be aware of masquerade to get any enjoyment out of this um I, you know, I was sort of interested in there's the, the the process of writing a thriller like this and 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 getting the plot to work and get the surprises to come at the right place and uh, the misdirections and the, is, is, is it, is that the most laborious thing about it? Do you plan it all out? You must, you must have to plan some book like this in advance yeah, before I you write it. Uh, no, I don't. Well, I I don't plan in advance. So I plot by writing and the way yeah. that I usually do that is I will start with the central scene, which in this case was the, um, the treasure being uncovered and it turning out to be a human bone. Now that doesn't yeah. actually happen what, to the extent that I'm wondering if I've spoiled my own book now, but probably not. <laughs> um, uh, that doesn't happen until about a quarter of the way into the book. So I had right. that central scene and I thought, well, I've got to give a bit of backstory leading up to that, but I don't want to do too much info dumping. So I need to ask questions and create intrigue as well. Uh, and then, you know, each scene will need a character. And I think, well, who are the witnesses here? Let's get a film crew in so that everything is 
um, documented because that will help me out later in the book when they're going through the camera footage to see what happened and who's been where. Um, and I use a program called Scrivener, which is essentially a word processing document, but it's got columns. So there's a if you're looking at your screen, you've got your blank page in the middle. Hopefully it's not blank forever, but, you know, <laughs> but on a good day, on a good day, it's not blank. Uh, and the left hand side, you can have uh, you can mark out your chapters almost like in a DVD menu. Um, you know, so I can say, for example, Nell comes back to the house. Nell finds out that her stalker is there with head headings. And then you can it's very, very easy. Unlike in a Microsoft Word document where you've got to scroll all the way up and down, you can very yeah. easily pick chapters and move them around. And I do that a lot. It's often, right. I often find that I know exactly what's happening in the book, but the plotting is about the order in which it happens. Um, so yeah, yeah, I don't write chronologically or linearly. I just keep going and write layers. And I write it, the first version is um, it's a proper vomit draft. You know, it's very rough and pretty much unintelligible to anyone but me. Uh, yeah. But and then I will, you know, I will keep tidying and keep tidying it. And then there's the real treat is the last draft where you're kind of um, you were very kind about my prose. But that's the joy, because that's when you can kind of set it to music and put all the finishing touches on knowing that you're not going to be you're not going to. And usually somebody else has seen it by then just to make sure that, you know, people don't suddenly appear from rooms that they couldn't possibly have been in or change ages three times in a single scene. <laughs> um, so that's the bit that I. That's the bit that I love. And yeah, plotting is, um, it is, it's laborious in that it's very labor intensive, but I really love it. I really, yeah. it's it's the hardest part, but it's also um, when it comes together, it's just a really wonderful feeling. And um, in terms of, I mean, so how, how long does it, how long would a book like this take you to, to write and what and, and I'm presuming it, you know it's now a full time occupation, so that's uh, yeah, yeah, it is my sort of the time it takes. job. So usually I would say a year and a half for, for a right. book, um, but I started this in lockdown, and I actually can't tell you anything that happened over the last three years and pin it down to any sense of time because um, <laughs> things start, they stop, um, you know. Uh, and so I think I think it was it was very quickly written because I had a long long time to think about it. Um, yeah. I think the first draft was about ten months, and then I gave it to my editor really confident, and then she said, "Yeah, you <laughs> you need to." Um, there are some things that aren't working here, and she was absolutely right on all counts. But then there was a rewrite, which was another four months or so. So, yeah, probably about yeah. a year and a half per book. I'd love to be That's able to write a book a year to do a, a Grisham or a ranking. You know, when you hit the ground <laughs> running, and you've got a certain month of the year that you know you're always published in. And but um, I've got a, uh, I think I'm a bit too much of a parent, a hands-on parent, to be able to make that work. Well, that's that's a good thing. And yeah, what's quite enjoyable about this book is the first book I've read that is post COVID. So it's uh, so it actually, you know, COVID has happened, and and, yes. and that's about. So it mentions a lot. I've read a lot of books that go. And this was written during COVID, but this is the first first book I've read. I've read that sort of, sort of novel anyway. That is, uh, COVID has just happened, and 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 is, is referenced, but it's not. But or equally, it's not about yeah. COVID. So Nice yeah, there were some helpful things. I mean, I think in the book, I say that the book, the Golden Bones, my uh, fictional book and the online version of The Treasure Hunt was a lockdown activity they did because they realised that families, you know, do want to get out and look for stuff in nature. So, yeah, yeah. it's referenced, but um, 
essentially I am going to write books that there's just this kind of two year gap in the middle, especially with crime and thriller writers. We were all saying, what do we do? Because one of the things about crime fiction is that probably more so than any other genre, certainly often more than, you know, when a great man of letters takes to his keyboard, I think crime has to so accurately capture the time it's in. You know, yeah. everything has to be right from the way that we use technology to the social issues of the day. And we were all looking at each other thinking, well, if we write something that's set now, it's going to be out of date by the time, you know, chapter eight will be obsolete by the time <laughs> chapter 16 is finished. So where do we go from there? So there's just going to be this void of two years when no crime was committed. Uh, in, so I think crime fiction kind of ends in 2019 and then picks back up again in 2021. <laughs> Um, and uh, I mean, there's a few things in research terms I was interested in because you're, you've said you're not an artist, or you've implied you're not an artist, and yet the um, the art scene, the art scene's very uh, well described in the process of creating art and glass working, especially, and also mm. living on a barge, which I'm looking at your uh, your your room, and I don't think that's on a barge. No, so it's, how how much human barnet? It's very much not. You you definitely captured. Uh, you definitely captured that lifestyle for for Lil uh, for Nell. Um, what what level of research do you do for that, or was or was that based on something you'd you'd encountered previously? Um, no, I put, I made her live on a barge because, as someone with a stalker, she wanted to keep moving, um, and I wanted her in London, but also isolated. Yeah. Um, and to do, I booked an Airbnb actually when lockdown ended. It was brilliant. Um, so I <laughs> stayed on a boat in Little Venice for a week uh, right. to finish my first draft of the book. And so I got an idea. I mean, I didn't get to pilot the boat, which is probably for the sake of everybody on the Grand Union Canal, probably a really <laughs> good idea. But I did, um, you know, I did get to understand the claustrophobia and a bit about the community and. Um, found out more about chemical toilets than I ever want to know. So that was a really <laughs> joyful piece of research. And then there was a stained glass artist who I interviewed and said, you know, how do you go about your day? And loads of um, stained glass artists on Instagram. And I'm not an artist, but I am an art lover. Um, yeah. And I read um, lots of art biographies and I interviewed Kit Williams, art dealer, That's actually, you. about All what right. life looked like in the 70s and, and how she had how she sold his paintings and the kind of snobbery of, you know, what's it like when your paintings are not fashionable, but people still really love them. And, uh, and then I also read lots of, there's a really good book it's up on my shelf called the art of rivalry. And it's about rivalries between male artists. So you've got, um, uh, or, or friendship between male artists and how there's always competition. So it's got Van Gogh and Gauguin and um, Francis Bacon and Lucy and Freud. So, you know, there's, there's just juicy inspiration everywhere on yeah. accounts. But this was a very research heavy book because I had to research treasure hunters, boats, stained glass, the art world. And then when you get to the actual buried body part of the book, I also had to yeah. know a lot about anatomy and decomposition. And... Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because it seems very, you seem very knowledgeable about how a body decomposes and what, and what different things would affect things. I was a bit scared to meet you in terms of whether you'd that was through, through um, research or knowledge. There's a forensic pathologist who I work with who was for a long time the advisor on Silent Witness. And once a year, I'll send him an email saying, me again. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's just he's just helped me. Um, I think he's probably helped me murder, dispose of um, seven or eight bodies now. Okay. So, 
Yeah, it's well, it's very, it's very, uh, very well described that particular body. Do you think you would? Uh, I'm sure you get asked this all the time. Uh, do you think you would make a good uh, murderer yourself through having done all these things? If there was someone you wanted, uh, you just looked away there, and and I think that indicates that you have murdered someone. Do Which direction did my eyes go? You can, you can went, tell. Uh, <laughs> well, as, well, we've just established them that I've got no poker face whatsoever. So. <laughs> but no, I think I, I might be able to. Um, I might be able to help somebody cover one up. I think I'd be yeah, quite okay. good at that. I don't think. I think I could be asked to murder anyone. I'm just <laughs> tired all the time, um, and yeah, I just it's it's hard work, you know. Yeah, it's going to take yeah, you away from definitely true. days and days. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure that the the way that this particular body gets hidden is too practical. Eventually, as a, for a murderer, or it's a bit of a risk anyway. But um, yeah, and I, but I, I did also. Love, I mean, I think the relation, the family relationships are great, but the relationship between um, Frank and um, his friend uh, Lal is it? Yeah, is um, yeah. Uh, they're sort of best friends, but they're obviously also rivals or certainly from frank's position it feels like he's you know he's always trying to get one over it is it is mm. very I, I've, I've experienced <laughs> i've experienced that kind of relationship where it's just everything's uh everything however awful and there's a couple of awful things to, towards the end um mm. that he's done um th- that it's it's sort of about just even knowing you've bettered the other person without even necessarily them or or yeah. beaten the other person is, but it's, that's very well observed, which I guess comes again from from some of those artists you were talking about researching that they were. Yeah, yeah, uh, it might have. But I think when yeah, you you often people tend to people who don't read many thrillers presume that they're all about evil with a capital E. You know, somebody's stroking a bald cat and laughing as they think about their evil deeds. <laughs> but actually, I think insecurity and cowardice are much more interesting motivators because that's what Frank is. He's an insecure man for whom no amount of success will ever be enough. And everything he's doing is not necessarily out of a sense of grandiosity so much as to stave off the idea that he's not good enough, that he's inferior in some way, which, uh, uh, and everybody's felt that, haven't they? I think what what the point of a good gothic thriller is is to take elements that we'll all have experienced and then just blow them up into the most extreme situations possible yes but it's also you know it's interesting he's had this huge success and he's still not happy with it so nothing would really make i mean he has he has aspirations as an artist i suppose but one thinks that even if those came good uh which i suppose to an extent they do anyway that that Mm. he he still wouldn't be satisfied Mm -hmm. he'd still be searching for the next thing so he's i mean he's a horrible just his relationship with his daughter, which is right from the, from the beginning, you know, to have that to have that situation where yeah. where something where she's nearly been killed, uh, and it's still not is it, it sort of hasn't really even. I mean, not that it's exactly his fault, but it's it's certainly it's certainly yeah. an inspiration for that crime. You'd think you'd that as a father to a daughter, there would be more. Um, yeah, you would. One would yeah. hope, but I think that's definitely it's definitely true of the character. So it does. It all makes sense. Um, as to as to why everyone's acting the way they are, and it's uh, but you know you learn a lot about the family as we go, and that's the, the as the as the layers fall away. So it is it's it's beautifully it is the pacing of it's beautiful. It's just brilliantly put together, um, and uh, yeah. So uh, 
let's just uh, let's talk about uh, what, what's coming up n- next for you. Have you have you got uh, are you working on your next one already? I presume. Yeah, I'm working on um, a book which is still in its infancy, but it's essentially about a woman who inherits a collection of dresses, uh, vintage clothes from uh, somebody who's dead, and finds mysteries clues inside the dresses but um not quite sure where that's going yet but i'm having real fun with it good and um is there other do you, do you are you read do you read a lot of other people's works and is there anything yeah, is anything at the all, moment oh so yeah. what am i reading at the moment um i so the last great novel i read was one that i think is either it will have been published by the time your podcast goes out it's called the half-life of valeri k by natasha pulley and nice. it's about a, so it starts off in a Siberian gulag. And one of my obsessions is Soviet history. Uh, and it's about, um, it's about a Soviet nuclear physicist who is plucked from a gulag and then is drawn into work in a kind of social experiment run by the Soviets to see basically how, how hard you can nuke a human population before it all goes absolutely to shit and it's really bleak I mean it takes in kind of eugenics and the Nazi party and it's one of the funniest books I've ever read so it's got that (laughs) it's almost it's uh you know in the same way that Catch-22 made the war hilarious uh it's that's or or almost like a Mick Heron book where it's very very funny throughout so um I love authors who can make the bleak really really funny and I I'm listening to an audio book as well at the moment, which is um, by DJ Fat Tony, and it's called I Can't Take, I Don't Take Requests. And it's about being a DJ in the 90s and best mates with Boy George. And he's just such a, he's just a terrible person. It's just one, you know, he kind of steals and lies and runs <laughs> out on people's houses. And it's about kind of addiction. And and he's just this kind of promiscuous nightmare and at the end of every chapter he goes oh, i was a right little cunt in them days it was terrible <laughs> but he's like but he's it's done with such charm that again you know it's kind of really really dark material presented almost as kind of stand-up and with yeah. uh you know a, a level of self-awareness um so there's been lots of me kind of walking around laughing out loud in the street apparently to myself while i've been listening to that one Oh, good. Well, this book uh, is uh, The Skeleton Key, and uh, it makes me think every book, regardless of whether it's a fiction or, or fact, should be made to hide something somewhere in the world that people that the readers have to find, and there should be clues in. And I've got a book about testicles coming out, so I'm going to hide some golden balls around the country. <laughs> it's, made me th- made, it's made me think there isn't enough, but I think all books should be mas- masquerade. And they should all have a prize. There aren't enough golden <laughs> testicles in the world. Yeah, there aren't enough golden testicles. So I'm going to hide golden balls around the UK uh, for you to find. And there'll be clues. It's a bit late because I've written the book and it's been published and I've done the audio book. So I don't know how I'm going to get the clues in there, but I'll, I'll work something out uh, backwards. Maybe, maybe, maybe for the next one, yeah, it will be fine. But uh, look, this is a fan. I can't tell you how much you enjoyed this. I, I, it's, um, I, I don't read loads of novels. And so, uh, you know, uh, maybe all novels are this good. I don't know. I'm surprised how how strong. <laughs> right when you read a lot of books, 
you suddenly go, oh, everyone's really good at writing, aren't they? That's, that's it's slightly <laughs> it's slightly disappointing to find everyone so good. It's quite hard to do a really good book and everyone's really good. Really this, good. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, maybe I'm just getting lucky. Um, about this? <laughs> this one's really good. I, re- I really recommend it, and I know people who listen to this podcast will will love it. So, uh, by the Skeleton Keep by Erin Kelly. Thank you very much, Erin. Lovely to uh, see Thank you. Thank you so and, much for uh, having me. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Cheers. Uh, And thanks also to Chris Evans, not that one, for producing and directing the show. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Don't drink the milk. No, this isn't a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. I'm Rachel Stewart and I'm travelling around Europe, following the hidden history of everyday things as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you very much for listening to my podcasts. Listen to some more. Tell your friends about these podcasts. We're in a very competitive market. And it would be lovely to keep those downloads coming in. The more downloads we get, the more money we make and the more podcasts we can make for you. It's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. Come and see me on tour at richardherring.com. Uh, but otherwise, just, you know, go outside. Enjoy the spring air. It's beautiful out there. I love you all. Goodbye.